1: Hello and welcome to this edition of World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today we're looking at South Africa, where efforts to force President Jacob Zuma out of office early seem to be reaching some sort of climax. Joining me on the line from Johannesburg is our correspondent there, Joseph Cottrell, and here in the studio are our former Johannesburg correspondent Andrew England. So, Joseph, things are moving pretty fast. We're speaking on Wednesday. The ANC has demanded President Zuma should leave office. President Zuma, however, has, I gather, just appeared on television and doesn't seem minded to. Do you think that ultimately this will lead to him being forced out?
2: His days are numbered. Whatever happens, it's really now just the form of his exit and how humiliating it will be for him. And to be frank, how humiliating it will be for the African National Congress. The ANC have said, we will remove you through Parliament if you don't resign in the next 24, or or really by the end of Wednesday. That would be humiliating for Zuma, but it would also be humiliating for the ANC, because they'll have to vote with the opposition through Parliament to do that, which would be unprecedented for... South Africa's former national liberation movement and the aura and the mythology which is built around it. So there are high stakes here, not just for Zuma, but also for the ANC in terms of what form his exit takes, even if we know that he is leaving one way or the other in 24 hours' time.
1: Andrew, can we assume, do you think, that if and when Zuma does leave office that the crisis is essentially over?
0: Well, I think everybody will be relieved when he's left office. I mean, his nine years as president have been tarnished by corruption allegations and scandals. And I think there is a certainly a national spirit that they want in that it's time to move on and get another president who can turn around the economy. But there is a question for the ANC how united it will remain. I mean, Zuma still has allies in the party, in the party's top ranks, including the... ANC's Secretary General Ace Magashule, the guy in, in in charge of the day to day running at the party. During they had what they call an NEC meeting, National Executive Committee meeting, which went on for thirteen hours. That's an eighty member more than eighty member body. They couldn't agree on a time frame. There were disagreements in that meeting. So the party split. It's become increasingly divided over allegations of corruption, over support for Zuma and those who want to push him out. At the same time, we just don't really know how much damage that Mr Zuma can do. He's a former ANC intelligence chief. As I said, he's been the president for the last nine years. He's been head of the party for the last 11 years. How much dirt does he have on everybody else? These are things that we don't know. So I think there'll be certainly a a relief when he's finally gone. And there will be the hope that Sir Ramaphosa, the deputy president, the ANC's new leader will be able to turn things around both in the country and the party. So that will be seen as very much a positive thing. Further repercussions, I think we're just going to have to wait and see.
1: Joseph, I mean, if and when Ramaphosa takes over as president, do we have a clear idea of what he's going to try and do? I mean, he's made anti-corruption his big theme, but as Andrew suggests, it goes pretty deep inside the ANC, and the ANC itself is politically divided as well.
2: Exactly. I mean, already Ramaphosa or prosecutors and police under Ramaphosa, since he was elected, have begun investigations into the Guptas who are a business family very close to Zuma, and also associates of Zuma in high-level corruption. The big question is how further down can Cyril's change of culture go, given the ANC is absolutely riddled with patronage politics from top to bottom. And now that's extremely ingrained. I mean, it was already beginning to kind of creep into the ANC well before Zuma. So Ramaphosa will have a job on his hands... And then when it comes to turning around the economy, things can't get much worse in terms of employment, in terms of stagnation and growth. But the ANC has resolved on policies which are going to be quite controversial and which Ramaphosa has to carry out on land reform, on state-funded higher education. Both those policies go right to the heart of South Africa's extremely severe economic inequality. And they're going to be difficult ones for Ramaphosa
1: to iron out and pass. Come back to the economy in a second. But just before we leave the political turmoil, Andrew, are you confident that this at least will pass off without violence?
0: I certainly hope so. I mean, South Africa is a vibrant democracy. It has strong state institutions, a strong civil society. And there's been a peaceful transition in terms of presidencies within the ANC. One would assume that even though Mr. Zuma at the moment is defying the party, the party that he serves at its behest, they say in the ANC that, you know, you're deployed, so you do what the party tells you. So it's surprising that he's going to such lengths to defy it. But I I think any talk of violence would be very much the extreme scenario. I mean, I think we should say that, you know, the fact that the ANC and the opposition parties have met today and agreed to work together together, on uh, this vote in no confidence vote scheduled for tomorrow is a historic thing. I mean, clearly the opposition parties want to see Mr. Zuma go as well. But the fact that they've all agreed to work together and pull in the same direction is a good sign. So I think, you know, we shouldn't be predicting violence and we certainly hope it doesn't happen.
1: And just just now to return to the subject you were talking about, the economy, you painted a pretty dire picture. I mean, is it... A question of stagnation, or are things actually getting worse by the year, even by the month?
3: I mean, if we look at Zuma's track record for the 90s, of scandal and wasted time, the wanted one statistic, GDP per capita, has fallen over that period. So even when the economy has grown, and uh, hasn't grown by very much, about 1% per year in recent years, that actually hasn't helped people on a per-head basis. And that kind of explains his boiling resentment and frustration with the ANC underneath the surface. You know, 24 years into ANC dominance of politics, that has not translated into economic change at a fundamental level. So things aren't getting like severely worse, but in a way, it's actually more frustrating for voters that things just don't change. They just remain in a steady state, a very unequal steady state
1: as well. And the state finances are not looking so great, are they? I mean, SNP downgraded South African bonds to junk in November, didn't they?
3: Yeah, and the country's state-owned enterprises are by and large seen as ticking time bombs. If Ramaphosa can't push on with the corruption purge very quickly, SOE's finances are on the brink. They include key parts of industrial infrastructure, such as ESCOM, the power utility, transnet, which is road, rail and ports, The can't be turned around if they start defaulting. If they effectively get bankrupt, that would send the economy into a tailspin. So again, there are quite high stakes, not just politically for our opposition to carry out the tide, but also economically.
1: And Andrew, I mean, something that is certainly going to get the world's attention is the possibility, indeed maybe probability, that Cape Town, the seat of parliament, the tourist capital, the kind of jewel of the country in a way, may run out of water in May. They'll, They'll turn on the taps and there won't be anything coming out. Is that part of, I mean, it feels or sounds like part of this general idea of the state kind of failing to cope. On the other hand, there's been a drought for three years.
0: Yeah, I think Joseph will correct me, but I think day zero, what they're calling it, when the taps turn off, has been moved back to June. I think the water situation in Cape Town has a lot to do with the drought. Um, there's been a severe drought for a very long time, but clearly it can be seen to be symbolic of what some see as the decay of infrastructure, of services in the country in recent years. And we should point out that the Western Cape has been run by the Opposition Democratic Alliance since 2009 and Cape Town itself has been run by the DA since 2006. So there also is a political element to it because it was you know, the first major city and the first province and the only province to be run by the opposition. So you've got a provincial government, which is the DA, and you've got the central government, uh, which is obviously the ANC. So there are frictions there and I think there are a lot of questions about whether the politicisation of the issue is actually exacerbated it. But I mean, to go back to your original point, I think clearly there's a sense that state institutions, Joseph mentioned ESCOM, the independence of institutions like the National Prosecutor Authority, attacks on the Treasury have all happened under Mr. Zuma's watch, where his critics would say you know, the focus has been on plundering state resources and state institutions and politicising them rather than actually using them for the development of the country. And this is one of the key issues that you know, Mr Ramaphosa is going to have to face. It's not just the economy, it's the instruments he has to turn around the economy that themselves have been hollowed out and will need to be restructured, uh, revived, if you like, to actually aid this idea of boosting growth and dealing with the issues of high unemployment and poor services.
1: Okay, so let's end then by looking at Mr. Ramaphosa and what he's likely to do, assuming that they can finally lever Jacob Zuma out of power. Joseph, I mean, I remember once meeting Ramaphosa in the early 1990s when he was touring Washington, and at that point he was a trade union leader and a militant anti apartheid activist. Since then, he's undergone something of a transformation and become one of South Africa's wealthiest and most successful businessmen. How do you think he's going to handle this huge responsibility that's been thrust on him?
3: Some people would say the fact that he was ingrained in the ANC and then became one of the richest black is non-coincidental. Like, he used his political connections to go far in business. And that's kind of relevant to what he has to do now, because lots of people will say the ANC, because of its long dominance of politics, is just so ingrained in patronage politics that not much can be done. On the other hand, Cyril is a negotiator, He was key to the negotiations to end apartheid in the early 1990s. Uh, Nelson Mandela really wanted him to be a successor. The exile generation in the ANC disagreed. So Ramaphosa has been waiting a very long time to do this, and his style is to bring everyone on board, to kind of forge consensus. So even though that has failed spectacularly, we're trying to lead Azuma out of office in a very dignified way, that is how Ramaphosa will approach things. He'll talk to business, he'll talk to civil society, he will try and get all of those worlds in motion. And given the legacy of the, you know, the paranoia of the Zuma years, people will be hoping that change sticks.
1: And Andrew, I mean, you you've, uh, must have come across Ramaphosa over the years. What's your impression of the man? Do you think he's up to it? Do you think anyone can turn this ship around?
0: It's very interesting. I mean, For many years, people wondered if he had the stomach for a fight to actually take on the ANC leadership. And, you know, after he became the ANC's deputy leader in 2012, there was a lift in the rand and people thought, "Okay, things are going to change in the ANC. Not a lot happened. And then he became deputy president to Jacob Zuma in 2014. And again, he was criticised for not speaking out enough about what was happening under Mr Zuma's watch. But others would say, well, actually, he's been very clever. He's been waiting. He's been biding his time. He knew that he couldn't take on the entire party he had to wait until you know, the environment was right to make his bid. And you know, the fact that he won in December at the ANC leadership election to defeat Mr. Zuma's preferred candidate was a big thing. And he's a smart guy. Uh, he's a very charming guy. And I think one thing that he will have, he'll have the goodwill of a lot of people. He'll have a goodwill of foreign investors, South Africa's corporate sector, people who've been unnerved, who've been put off by political uncertainty, put off by worries about corruption. So he will certainly have a honeymoon period. I mean, we've seen the RAN track Mr. Zuma's fall, i.e. by rising. So there will be a lot of goodwill. But I think the key thing is people are going to want to see him make tough decisions quickly to show that he has the power and the influence within the party and within the government to bring about dramatic change. So, you know, I think when he becomes president, that will be welcomed. He will have this short period of, of a honeymoon, but then he's going to have to actually produce.
1: Okay, well, that gives us a good subject to return to in due course, as we see how President Ramaphosa, if and when he takes office, sorts this out. But for now, thank you very much indeed to Andrew England here in the studio and to Joseph Cottrell in Johannesburg. That's it for this week.
0: Until next week, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface.